Good to see you all this morning. And uh, as we consider this text of the cleansing of the temple, we're going to talk about three things that we see in our Lord uh, in his example this morning. We're going to talk about his passion, we're going to talk about his prophecy, and we're going to talk about the impact of his progeny. So uh, I invite you to consider with me the first point this morning, the passion that we see here of Jesus. Verse 13 and 14 tells us the context of what happened, that that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. I think it it, it might be helpful for us to um, remember the context of of what is going on here. The, the, The feast of Passover was a big deal, maybe like our Christmas. And so this was a time where pilgrims would have all come together uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, scholars say that probably there were around 2 million people in the city of Jerusalem for Passover. And so the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court, and we've got a a picture of this just to show you, um, that had turned into a big bazaar. So if you, if you look at this slide of Herod's temple, you can see the original temple in the middle that Solomon would have built and had been restored, and then Herod had added successive courts. And so the, the largest court here would be that of the Gentiles, and so proselytes um, from other uh, countries who are not Jews were actually allowed to come into this area, and, and the idea was for them to be able to worship uh, the true God without having, they weren't allowed to come all the way into the inner sanctums where only Jews were allowed. And so, uh, but uh, sadly, instead of a, a place of worship, this whole area had turned into a marketplace. And the reason for this is, as I mentioned, Jews are coming from numerous countries uh, out in the diaspora for this huge festival. And every Jewish male who was 20 years and up had to pay an annual temple tax of half a shekel. And so the, the temple would not accept coinage from pagan lands because those coins had images on them, and so they were considered sacrilegious. And so money changers were there, therefore needed, and it had become a huge industry, and it had crept right into the temple property itself. And of course, there were also animals to be sacrificed. And so you can imagine if you're a, a faithful Jew from a distant shore, um, carrying an unblemished, uh, ceremonially clean lamb that distance would be quite difficult. And so, um, because it was so hard to bring clean animals from afar for the sacrifices, a ceremonially clean sacrificial animal market had sprung up. Now, you, you, can, you can be sure that it was for a price. Now, when Jesus looked around at the court of the Gentiles, he was not impressed with what he saw. And so, here's what we see Jesus do in verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, as as far as I can tell, this was not a miracle. So I just want you to think about that for a moment. Uh, Let's put that slide back up for just a second there, Gideon, if you would. Um, The temple or the court of the Gentiles was a vast space, all right? And, And so... I, I'm only imagining by this point um, that this bazaar had expanded quite large, all right? So just try to imagine one man with an improvised whip 
clearing out that space. And if you looked at the text carefully, it says that he drove them all out of the temple. This was a huge amount of space to clear out. Now, I don't know uh, if maybe some of his disciples, I'm sure they were wide-eyed watching this whole thing, if some of them were like, all right, let's get them. You know, maybe they came behind Jesus and helped out a little bit. Um, I don't know. But either way, this was, this was a feat of nature, of human nature. And, and what we see here is that Jesus, uh, despite a lot of the, the uh, art that maybe we're accustomed to, was no sissy. All right? He was a force of human nature. Now, now Jesus is the Lamb of God who was sent to take away the sins of the world, but the Bible also says that he is a lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, now some folks are, frankly, disturbed or even embarrassed about this, this whole story. And, and they, they say, but wasn't Jesus humble and, and meek? And, and, and yes, Jesus actually himself said that he was humble and meek. In Matthew chapter 11, uh, 29, and you can, you can go there, Gideon. Thanks for bringing that slide back up for us. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So there's no doubt that, that Jesus w- w- was meek and lowly, and he was there to, to comfort the afflicted, but he certainly didn't mind afflicting the comfortable. And so here, here we see that, that, that Jesus um, uh, uh, afflicted the comfortable and the flippant. And as I said, some folks don't like this story. They're, they're embarrassed even by the angry Jesus because it might not fit into the, the box that we want to put them into in our culture today. But you know what, kids? I'm just going to go out on a limb here and imagine that you do like this story, don't you? And that's probably because you're not impressed by a boring, wimpy Jesus, right? I mean, who, impre- who would who'd want to follow a boring, wimpy savior or hero? And so some people wrongfully try to downplay this scene or even Jesus' anger here. But you know, this isn't the only time that we read about Jesus in the Gospels getting angry. He actually got pretty upset at religious hypocrisy. In Mark chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, he was in a synagogue and there was a man with a withered arm. And, And Jesus had compassion on that man with a withered arm, and he was going to heal him. And what we, what we read is that the, the, the religious leaders in the room weren't looking with compassion on the man. They were waiting to, to see if Jesus would violate the Sabbath law, that you shouldn't work because they considered a miracle work. And so this is what, how Jesus reacted. He said in verse 4 of Mark chapter 3, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Later, as Jesus was interacting at length in Matthew chapter 23 with some of the Jewish religious leaders, here's what he had to say to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You serpents, you brood of vipers, 
How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, does Jesus, does Jesus sound a little bit upset here? Let me tell you that he was. This, this is angry Jesus speaking. Now, <clears throat> I do want to be careful here, and I feel the need to qualify. Before you say, well, hot dog, uh, I'm going to tell folks, you know, I'm going to give them what for next time. Um, before you imitate Jesus here in how you point out other people's sin, I think it's important to remember that Jesus was approaching these hypocrites from a position of complete moral purity, which is something that you and I just don't have. Now, we have it positionally in Christ. God has justified us and declared us righteous. We're still battling the flesh. And let me tell you, that our, our flesh is often complex, okay? Uh, it, it, it is hard to have truly pure motives and intentions. And if you're involved in a conflict, dare I, dare I say, it is really, really hard to have such thing as righteous anger. So if we're in any kind of a conflict, we should probably first turn the whip on our own lives before trying to think about whipping other people into shape. All right, did you catch that caveat? And that's important. But it is important for us to understand that there is a difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger, okay? And is it possible for us to have righteous anger? Yes, I would say absolutely it is. Is it probable for us to have righteous anger? If we're, uh, if we're in any way personally involved in the situation, I would say no, it is improbable for our, for our anger to be righteous. So let's, let's be very careful here not to misapply uh, the message here. But is it possible to have righteous anger? Well, the Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Now, how do you know if, if anger is righteous? Right? Now, this could be a, a complex discussion, but I'd like to try to make it simple by simply saying righteous anger is ultimately motivated by love. Righteous anger is not the opposite of love. It never is the opposite of love. It is ultimately motivated by love. Pastor Matt Carter writes, genuine love is compatible with anger. In fact, genuine love is sometimes demonstrated by anger. At times, anger proves love is authentic. He talks about a friend of his who has dedicated to fighting modern-day slavery with his life. So that, that's what this guy does. I mean, he, he travels the world. He advocates. Um, he is all about, his, his life is dedicated to trying to end slavery. And, and so he writes this about his friend. He says, I know his love for the abused is real because he gets angry when he sees the abuse. Another, another pastor wrote, men and women of great love have always been people of great hatred. In fact, you can tell as much about a person by his hatred as by his loves. Love presupposes hatred. A love for the downtrodden, the poor, and the oppressed also brings about a hatred for the conditions that cause their sufferings. For instance, let, let's think for a moment together about our hatred for wicked things like abortion or racism, human trafficking, brutality, 
from any direction that it comes against image bearers of God. Well, being passionate in our efforts to, to end these wicked things demonstrates love for the image bearers that are victimized by them and for their creator. Somebody said that spineless love is hardly love. But why was Jesus angry here at the temple in this context? So let's consider the reasons for Jesus' anger. Well, the first, the first reason is corruption. The, the money changers here, we're, we're told by, by scholars, were, were, were charging serious interest. And, and, and so this, this whole business of, of, of changing money from the sojourners, okay, from Jewish sojourners who were coming to pay their temple tax, um, that, that had become big business. They were able to extort uh, one scholar put the price tag at $150 million that this generated annually. So it was a big business, and Annas, the high priest, was profiteering. Some of the um, cynical writers of the day called the temple grounds the bazaars of Annas. Further, animals were carefully inspected by the ceremonially clean police, and they had every reason to disqualify your animal, Okay. So imagine you, you journey from afar, or even you journey from somewhere like, like Nazareth, you know, you bring that, you, the best lamb that you had in your flock, and after three or four times of that being declared uh, ceremonially unclean, what, what are you going to start doing? You're just going to have to pony up the money, right? So these, the, the, these, these ceremonially clean police were in on the racket, and it was especially targeted against those who had, 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 had worked the hardest to get there. And against those who are outsiders and might not know the right prices, okay? Um, the underdogs. And you can imagine the haggling that would have been going on. And so the temple of God had, had been turned into this big marketplace where there's all kinds of corruption going on. Well, God had said back in Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So we see that there was corruption going on here. And closely related to that, secondly, we see that there was discrimination going on here. And I say discrimination, um, let's think about the location. The, the, the place, the court of the temple that had become this big bazaar that so incensed Jesus was called the court of the Gentiles. And again, that might seem strange to us, but there were Gentile proselytes um, the New Testament in John chapter 12, 20 calls them Greeks, although they weren't necessarily only from modern-day Greece. They may have been from Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, but it reads, John 12, 20 says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these were formerly, uh, former pagans. These were ethnically non-Jews, people we call Gentiles, who had come to believe that, that Yahweh was God. Like the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about Philip inter interacting with and explaining the gospel to, right? Um, they would come, they'd make a pilgrimage, and though they weren't allowed into the, the, the inner sanctum of the temple, so to speak, they could at least get close to this portal between heaven and earth, right? And they could, they could, they could pray to the true God and express their faith. But, but now that the love of money had made this difficult, because this place that they could come and, and worship the, the king, the, the living God at, had turned into a big market. And, and, and in fact, it was difficult, if not impossible, for Gentile proselytes to come and worship Yahweh. Well, here's what the Lord has to say about that back in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19, 
verse 34. The Lord God says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Jesus was not happy about the corruption or the discrimination that was going on here at the temple, but what we actually see in our text, the main reason Jesus was angry was because there was massive disrespect for God going on here. God is holy, and there was a flippant attitude uh, underlying the practice of this marketplace that had crept into the temple grounds. Jesus was passionate about his Father's glory, and therefore he was incensed by the flippancy being shown towards the holy God at his designated place of worship. And so we see in verse 16, and he told those who, who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then we read in verse 17, his disciples remembered, Psalm 69, 9, zeal for your house will consume me. Now the temple was the place that God had set up, a designated place to, to meet his people. It was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of, of worship. It was a holy place. But now, in the words of one writer, the sounds of confession have been replaced with the sounds of commerce. Now, it might be easy here for us in our minds when we, we get to this point to draw a connection between the temple in Jerusalem and what we call in our vernacular a house of worship, like our church building, right? And, and, and so, therefore, you might walk out of here and, you know, um, kind of have the attitude of, uh, take that hat off, young man. You know, respect, uh, you know, no drinking here in, in the sanctuary. This is the sanctuary of God. But what does the Bible actually say about the fulfillment of the temple in the new covenant? And let's think about that for a moment. What, what is the application here in the New Testament, in the new covenant of the temple? And we know, of course, that the whole temple pointed to Jesus, right? But look in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll put these words up here for you, verse 19 through 22. Paul writes to Christians who are coming from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. He writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what, it, what, it, what he's saying is we have the Holy Spirit, God himself, living in us as Christians. And so we, not only individually, but corporately, joined together are the fulfillment of the temple. We are the temple, as Christians, of the living God. First Peter chapter 2 Verse 4 through 5, another apostle, okay, makes the same point. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What is a spiritual house? The temple, yeah? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. So what, what does that mean? 
And how do we apply this uh, uh, to, to good th- a good theological perspective of a New Testament temple? Well, what is sacred is not our building, but the assembly of Christians gathering together to worship God. Now, we may show respect to the place where Christians assemble to worship God, and that's not a bad thing, but let's be sure that we don't confuse the two. Our, our church is not our building. It is not made of stones or metal or sheetrock. Our church is made of redeemed souls who belong to God. And so our, our cultural language really misses the mark here. It's not accurate. It's not true. It paints a false um, uh, definition or picture of the church because we say things like, well, we're going to church, but we don't go to church. We are the church. And so we could meet in a field together and be the church just as much as we are right now in this building. In fact, the idea that, that the church is a building is actually discriminate, is a, is a, discriminatory, a discriminatory insult against many of our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have buildings like this, who meet in house churches or, or meet under trees, but they are the church as much as we are. We shouldn't think that because we have a building, we're somehow more righteous or more bona fide than they are. But when we gather together as the church to, to worship our risen Lord, we're proclaiming before all who are watching, not just those who visit or those who, who watch on the, on, the, on the live stream, but the heavenly realm. By that I mean angels and demons who are watching. What we're doing is we're proclaiming when we gather together to worship God that He is worthy. That's what we're doing. And that's important. And is that what they see in us? Is that what they see? Do we revere Him in our worship, or are we flippant like the Jews were being flippant at the temple through their bazaar? In an attitude of irreverence towards God in worship, demonstrates heart idolatry, that we have remade God into an image of our own liking. Now, it might be easy in our minds to think of the church down the street, you know, and and I'm not talking about skinny jeans and fog machines right now, although that could certainly be uh, an application here. But what I'm talking about here is dead ritualistic worship communicates that God is dead or distant. Do you know that? Christians worship God with joy because they're in awe of their living God, right? So if we just kind of come through and go through the motions without thinking about our living God, you know what we're doing? We're being flippant. We're being irreverent towards Him. Well, have we become flippant towards God in our thinking, personally? You know, I've, I've, talked, to, I've talked to all kinds of people, and I've had people tell me um, when I've tried to kind of get into uh, spiritual conversation, they'll say something like, well, me and the man upstairs are good. Do, do you realize how irreverent and flippant that is? We, we shrug when we hear people take God's name in vain. I mean, we consider that PG material, right? It's okay to watch movies where God's name is being taken in vain left and right as long as there's no F words, right? We, we think, well, you know, it's not an F word. It's no big deal. Um, you know what? I think God begs to differ. I think we've got it backwards. Not endorsing the F word, by the way, young people. Um, but I think we've got it backwards. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
That's a, that's a commandment. Now, we must take our holy God seriously, but that doesn't mean that we should take ourselves too seriously, okay? Um, as Christians, there's plenty of fodder to laugh at ourselves, and so I want to thank my friend Robbie last night, for those who are around, and my other brothers. Um, part of our, we had a little get-together for some of the, the leaders and, and teachers, and um, the staff pastors made fun of each other. And, and you know what? That can, be a good and, and that can be a good thing, to not take ourselves too seriously. Let's be sure that we're taking our God seriously. Are our worship services more about ascribing glory to God or, or about our feeling of being given the perfectly tailored worship experience? And that's a question all of us need to ask. Am I more about, am I in it for me? Or am I in awe of a holy God? And so it's not just the megas, the mega churches, right? We need to guard this individually in our own hearts as well. So are we thinking at church about worshiping the king? Or are we, do our minds drift to that purchase that we're considering? Or that, that package that might be waiting for us at the door when we get home? Because now, hey, you know, FedEx is running on Sundays, right? Um, and around Christmas, at least, so is the postal service. If that's where our mind is, we too are being distracted by the marketplace of our minds. Or, or, or during, during fellowship, after the service, as you're getting a chance to connect with other people, are you, are you thinking about ministering to others or about making some kind of a business or social connection that might help you climb the ladder? If so, that's the marketplace, right? We too are, are turning the, the place of the living God into a, a bazaar, a place of marketplace. The, the way that we worship God on Sunday mornings reveals our true theology, what we really believe about Him. Is He the, the man upstairs, or is He an awesome creator, redeemer, who's worthy of our worship and our affections and our loyalty and our lives? You know, during, during worship, I love it, and I, I always love uh, All Generation Sundays because I just love watching some of our young people and our kids sing out. Um, and, and I know that even, our, even a, a child is known by his doings, whether they be good or, or, or right. I, I know that we're all born in depravity, and so even our young ones are not righteous apart from the blood of Christ. But I love seeing the innocence and the, the purity of faith coming out of their lips as they sing out. So let us older folks learn from our younger generation about praising God. You know, Jesus had passion, and, and so should we. But let's also consider this morning two more things, and that would be, the next one would be the prophecy that we see here of Jesus. All right, we've talked about the passion of Jesus. Let's talk about the prophecy of Jesus. In verse 18, we read, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, there's no doubt they were, uh, they were arrested, they were upset, they noticed him, uh, you know, this, was, this, this struck uh, home all the way up to the, the, the top of the Jewish leadership, right? Um, Jesus, this, 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 this carpenter from Nazareth that the people are starting to follow, there might have been a little bit of buzz uh, going about this miracle he had, he had performed up in Cana, we don't know, we don't know how many, how many people had heard about that, um, but here he is, uh, out of place, this redneck, uh, coming in and, and with a whip, creating mayhem and, and clearing out our bazaar. Like, how dare you, is what they're saying to him. What gives you the right? Prove it to us. 
What sign do you show us for doing these things? And, and I love how Jesus gives them a non-direct, uh, a spiritual answer. And when Jesus talks a lot in John, the, the wicked don't have a clue of what he's talking about. Okay, sometimes his disciples have a clue. Uh, later, they, got it, they, they figured it all out. Okay, but when you look at what he's saying, there, there's such genius and, and prophecy and, and spiritual significance because he's not just talking about the immediate what's going on right here. He's talking about basically what we all really need to know for our long-term spiritual good. And so here's the answer he gives them. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? What are you talking about? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. What Jesus is saying is, you, you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. I'm the fulfillment of the temple. I am God himself meeting man on earth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I will give myself on the cross to reconcile man and God. And so you destroy my body. That's what you're going to do. You're going to destroy my body, and in three days I will raise it up. Now I find that interesting, uh, and as I was thinking about this this week, um, I, I found it interesting that Jesus says here, I will raise it up. Because in other places, the, the Bible talks about the Holy, Father, the, the, the Holy Spirit and God the Father raising Jesus, and that's true. But here we see that Jesus was an agent of his own resurrection, okay? And what that means is that he has authority even over our great enemy, the, the grim reaper, right? Death itself. The, the enemy of all mankind, the, the great enemy. Jesus has authority even over death himself. And that's why we Christians believe in him. And that's why we Christians put our, our hope in him. He has risen from the dead. He has defeated death. And so if you don't know him, if you're here this morning and maybe you know a lot about him, but you don't have a true relationship with God through faith in Jesus, I, I encourage you this very day to acknowledge that he has made you and that you have sinned against him and that there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor back, okay? No amount of religiosity or good works can outdo the, the grievance of our treasonous sin against the holy God. But the good news of the gospel is that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. That was his whole mission. Everything that we're going to be reading and studying in the next months ahead in John is leading up to the fulfillment of his mission, which was to die on the cross, but to rise victoriously from the dead. And so the good news of the gospel and what you must do to be saved is that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has risen him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And this is our hope. This is where we Christians find hope. That's what Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we, we Christians need to remember to think about and to talk about 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ, anytime we're thinking about the gospel. That's the foundation of our living hope that Jesus Christ, his prophecy came true. He's alive. He defeated death and rose from the dead. And because he rose, so, so, so shall we. We too will have immortality uh, if we're in Christ. So let's uh, consider our, our, our last point this, this morning as we land the plane, the progeny of Jesus. Okay, now what do I mean here? The progeny of, of Jesus. Well, I'm talking about his disciples, his spiritual progeny. Okay, these are just some regular Joes who Jesus called from various walks of life, tax collector, fisherman, um, uh, all, you know, the, these people who came and followed Jesus for three years and learned from Jesus and didn't always understand exactly what he was doing, but they were, they were all in and they were following him. Okay, and, and after he died and rose from the dead and, they, and their eyes were fully open to understand the, the, the glory of the gospel, they went out there and turned the world upside down. I mean, they're faithful. They, they, went, they went to places like Ethiopia and modern-day Turkey and Spain and, and traveled the known world uh, enduring all kinds of stuff and persecution and hostility, as well as people who received him in places, to, 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 to proclaim this gospel. So let's think about the progeny of Jesus. And we see a little bit about this in verse 22. When, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, let's go back and, and think about the first recorded time we hear about Jesus visiting the temple. Now, he may have gone with his parents before this, um, but in Luke chapter 2, verse 46, we, we read the story of Jesus as a 12-year-old at the temple. So this would have been about 20 years before the story that we've been considering this morning. Okay, and so you have a 12-year-old Jesus at the temple, and you remember how uh, they, they traveled in a big group, probably a big family group, extended family group from, from Nazareth, and so uh, his parents trusted him, rightly, excuse me, rightly so, and, and so um, they figured he was with the family pack on the journey home, and it took him about a day to realize he wasn't with the group. So they hightail it back to Jerusalem, search for three days, and where do they find him? In the temple courts, right? In, in, in dialogue with these religious scholars and, and, and leaders, and he's asking questions, and he's answering questions, and they're just like confounded by the the knowledge of God and of the Old Testament of this 12-year-old. And, and so, you know, there's this great theological discussion. And, and you know what we don't notice mentioned there in that text? A bazaar at the temple. We don't read about money changers and, and about uh, uh, pigeons and, and sheep and, and, and a, you know, a huge marketplace, right? Now, I'm not saying none of that was going on there, but we don't read about it. And uh, the, the, the temple seems to be a little more serene, God-centered kind of environment at that time, right? 20 years before. And at some point, and I don't know exactly when this happened in history, um, but somebody had an idea. Hey, let's bring in money changers and animal sellers into the court of the Gentiles to help pilgrims out. And so a, a turtle dove quickly became a huge industry. It didn't take long to evolve into turning the temple grounds into a big market. So here's my, my point, and that is that spiritual drift can happen fast. Spiritual drift can happen fast. So let's make sure that we don't drift church. And I'm talking here to all generations there, 
okay? Uh, kids, as you turn into teenagers, and teenagers, as you go off to college, college students, as you become young adults, um, older folks, as your body starts ailing and hurting, okay, uh, let's make sure that we don't drift from the faith, from a pure worship of God. You know, they tell us, um, those who do statistics, tell us that the majority of young people who grow up in church drift away during and after the college years. And I've, I've heard numbers as high as 80%. I went back and took a quick look this week. LifeWay did some research. Uh, they said 66%. Barna research said 70%. And this was college students and young career, um, either losing their faith or still identifying as Christians, but no longer being involved in the church. That's, that was the, what the research parameters were. I'll tell you, that, that breaks my heart. That's not what I want for you, young people. So we see in our, in our text that Jesus' progeny, his disciples, they remembered Jesus' words. Now, we need to remember this, and I think this is the key to countering the natural tendency of drift, all right? Let me tell you, you go out there on a, on a paddleboard or a, a kayak, uh, you're going to go against some wind or some current, and, and if you stop paddling, you will drift. You will drift backwards, right? So we could talk all about endurance, etc., but actually that could be pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, and that's not going to do it for you. So here's what I want you to remember, and that is we become what we behold, let me say that again. We become what we behold. The, the things that fill our mind shape who we become. And what that means is we need to set our minds and we need to set our gaze intentionally every day and every week on Christ. Young people, our high school students who are about to go off to college, when you get there, Make sure you find a local church that teaches the Bible, and you better do that in your first week. Not that you have to settle on it, but you better start looking for it your first week. Or you know what's going to happen? You will drift. You may think, no, I love Jesus now. There's no way I could you know, compromise. You will drift. You need, the, you need the, the, the body of Christ around you. You need to make sure that, that you are disciplined. And that's not the only thing. You could show up at church every week and totally drift spiritually. Okay, uh, All of us could. Okay, but we, we need to make sure that we are beholding Christ. Colossians chapter 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I've, I've actually drifted. There's a time in my life in which I was all in. I was passionate for Christ. And if I look at my life right now, that's not where I am. Well, you know what? The, the, same, the same answer is for you. Set your mind on Christ, the things that are above. Um, look to Jesus. You may need to repent. 
He, he's waiting for you. Like Jesus said that, that his father was like the, the father of the prodigal who came back to him with sincerity, sincere repentance. He, he's waiting for you. In fact, Jesus is, is right there with his father advocating for you, reminding his father that I, I died for her. I died for him. I, I've covered that with my blood. He is waiting to forgive you. But you've got to look to him in true repentance and faith. So look to Jesus. Students, will you be shaped by the new environment that you find around you or by Christ, by his word? Will you, be, will you remember the simple things that you have been taught? The things when you were young that maybe penetrated your heart. Maybe some of those simple songs that you learned as a child. And I won't try to sing it for you here. But the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Will you, will you hang on to that? Or maybe the, the song, This Little Light of Mine. I'm going to let it shine. Some of you may walk down some spiritually dark hallways or even through some dark urban battleground. Will you remember those truths as you're facing whatever the future has in store? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we don't know what the future has in store for each of us, but we know you, and you hold us and our future in the palm of your hand. I want to pray specifically for our young people this morning. Dear Father, I pray that that you would hold them, and I pray that they would hold on to you. And Lord, I pray that as they grow and mature and as as, as they launch out into this world, Lord, as they walk down dark hallways, and Lord, as they walk through even maybe the, sh- the valley of the shadow of death in their life, uh, life experiences, I pray, God, that, that the light of the Holy Spirit and of the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine brightly in their hearts. And Lord, I don't only want to pray that they would remain steadfast, and I do pray for that, but I pray that they would change the world just as your disciples did. I pray this in Jesus Christ's great name. Amen. Amen.